30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard Today is October 22nd. On June 10th, I recorded an episode of this podcast as a ritual, commenting on the wave of protests then occurring in American cities, part of an unprecedented outcry for racial justice following George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police on May 25th. June 10th was 134 days ago, but in many ways, It feels far more distant. Think back for a moment. Maybe you were there, live, in person, and joined your voice with the protesters filling city streets. Or maybe you consumed the moment as news stories and think pieces, a supplement of racial justice-related content added to your normal media diet. Or maybe, and perhaps most likely, You experienced it through social media. I think a lot of us experienced it through social media. There was Blackout Tuesday when people turned their profile pictures into single black squares and then everyone argued about whether that was helpful or harmful. And there were a couple of weeks, or maybe it was just days, where I felt a hesitance across my whole feed to post about anything else. Promoting your blog or podcast felt wrong, and the normal stream of inane memes read as wildly inappropriate. Instead, people announced their support for Black Lives Matter and directed anyone who had an issue with that to unfollow them. People shared everything they could find on racial justice, podcasts, interviews, reading lists, and reminded each other to watch Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th on Netflix. It was a remarkable moment. And while some reforms have been made, others are still being woefully ignored, and the justice many have sought in the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey is still being denied, it feels like the moment has passed. Not that racial justice is no longer relevant, but that that specific moment of protest, outcry, and focused attention on the issue that occurred this summer, that moment has passed. On June 10th, when I sat down to figure out what I, a white man and professional wizard, should say in this particular moment, I came up with two key points. The first was committing to consistency, which is why I encouraged us all to commit to spending 10 minutes a day working through the Justice in June document which offered specific racial justice readings, videos, and actions that would take just 10 minutes each day. The second was creating accountability. I vowed to record and release another episode 134 days later on October 22nd, 
which is National Anti-Police Brutality Day, reflecting on what I've done and how I've disrupted the pattern. So here we are. How have I changed? How effectively have I disrupted my own racist patterns? How am I doing at becoming anti-racist? The short answer is not great. I'll unpack that more in a moment, but before I do, I wanted to give a little context for this exercise. From observing social media trends in my own little corner of the internet, I've noticed two patterns related to white people commenting on racial justice. One I'll call exemption by omission, which is where someone posts about a problematic thing that other white people are doing, and the subtext here always seems to imply, hey, I'm letting you know about this thing that other people are doing, which by me pointing out, I also want you to know that I'm certainly not doing it and am far above that level. The other is self-flagellation. The post posed as either a confession or a promise to do better, owning up to one's racist ways as a form of absolvement, even if the poster explicitly denies seeking absolvement. Now, I'm not trying to shame these two patterns. There are, of course, negative, insincere, performative aspects we could unpack, but there are also very valid reasons for wanting to make these statements publicly. And I am probably going to fall into both of these traps myself. My only goal in bringing them up is to communicate the path that I'm trying to walk here. My goal is to be as transparent as I can possibly be about my own attempts to alter the patterns of racism and white supremacy in which I partake, in which I play a role in our society, in which I embody in my own being. And look, I am not a scholar with an advanced degree in racial issues. I am not a leading activist. I am not an expert. I am a 34-year-old white dude who turned himself into a wizard, and the only reason I think you should listen to what I have to say here and not just Google anti-racist podcast and find a more informed, better edited podcast on this topic is that I hope my own struggles can illustrate the messiness of this process in a way short social media posts often obfuscate. And I'm committing to returning this topic again and again so that over time I can discover and then share what it takes to make these changes and disrupt these patterns. Now, let's get into it. I had 134 days to challenge my own racism and educate myself. I wasn't expecting to single-handedly eradicate racial oppression worldwide, but I'll admit now that I didn't really have a vision beyond commit to the Justice in June document and, well, I didn't. I didn't complete the Justice in June doc. I stuck with it for about two weeks, but then I broke the streak. And I kept meaning to come back and read everything I'd skipped. And I just never did. The other patterns in my life, work, sleep, wizardry, trying to exercise, moving into a new house, ended up crowding out my commitment to spend just 10 minutes a day reading blog posts and sending emails with pre-written templates. 
and I'm not going to make excuses. I think that's bad. I wish that I had done better. I wish that knowing I'd one day sit down to record a podcast assessing my performance on this task had motivated me to do better. But it didn't. Patterns are hard to break and consistency is hard to maintain. We'll come back to this later. But in the plus column, I did read White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I read it in two days. I couldn't put it down. I'm sure there are issues with the book and hot takes on why it's actually problematic, but I wolfed it down and found it incredibly helpful. I appreciated the author's straightforward, no-nonsense approach to breaking down the concepts of white supremacy, whiteness, and white fragility into easily grasped, well-defended arguments, and how these concepts combine to create, perpetuate, and defend an often invisible system of oppression. And that was the biggest takeaway for me. How, as a white person, this system of oppression operates in my blind spots. How I've been taught to ignore racism, to avoid racial discomfort, and to never question the lack of diversity in my life. As a child, I went to a diverse elementary school in Indiana before moving to an incredibly white suburb of Massachusetts, before then going on to inhabit predominantly white communities in Washington State, Austin, Texas, and Brooklyn. I now live in Louisville, Kentucky, which is both diverse and horribly segregated. And for the first time in my life, I realized that not having black friends means I'm not making an effort to have black friends. That I'm segregating myself through interest groups, activities, geographic areas, and an unchecked back of my brain belief that not having black friends is okay. Whereas trying to actively make friends with people of color is somehow weird, awkward, or tokenizing. And I now know that's a pattern that I want to disrupt thanks to reading White Fragility. But one book I didn't learn anything from was How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Because I didn't read it. And why didn't I read it? Well, because the day I drove to the local bookstore, they were out. And they had other books by him, among dozens of books on racial justice, but that's the one I wanted, and they didn't have it, so I left with a social psychology book by a white author instead. And then I didn't order it online because I didn't want to support Amazon, but I still watch movies on Amazon Prime, and I ordered some house stuff from Amazon when I couldn't find what I needed at Target, so clearly if I really wanted to read the book, I would have. And the reason I'm citing this specific example of non-action is to illustrate how much effort it takes to truly disrupt a pattern. I regularly purchase books for my sci-fi book club or ones related to magic, psychology, anthropology, evolution, and other topics I'm interested in. But reading a book about racial justice felt more like a chore. I didn't prioritize it in the same way. I made excuses that don't really hold up under scrutiny. And so what I'm trying to show isn't how awful I am or how hard it is to read new books so it's not my fault, but just how fucking dumb we can be when we try to change our patterns. Things that sound easy or quote-unquote should be easy 
are actually quite complicated when they challenge deeply ingrained patterns, ask us to be uncomfortable, and take more than a token effort. Oh, and speaking of token efforts, I did attend several protests. I've been to Injustice Square Park here in Louisville, which has been the site of ongoing protests and activism since Breonna Taylor was killed. But when the grand jury released its report on the case, and the city of Louisville braced for another wave of protests and unrest, I was not on the front lines. I was driving to Atlanta in a van to pick up furniture. And when my partner and I got back that weekend, we avoided downtown due to the insane police hostility and our desire not to be tear-gassed or arrested. But we did come out that Sunday night to volunteer at the Unitarian Church, which was serving as sanctuary space for protesters. But then there wasn't that much happening that night, and the small crowd of protesters was young, rowdy, and disorganized. So when we realized the other volunteers didn't need any more hands to serve food, we went home and watched a movie. But I did attend a benefit brunch to listen to a Q&A with several of the women of color leading Louisville's social justice movement. And while I was there, a black woman in the crowd asked a question. She said she was from Louisville, but had left to get a PhD and was now working for the federal government in a role supporting its diversity and inclusion efforts. And while she was sharing posts on social media and donating to local orgs, she felt guilty for not being out in the streets on the front lines of the protest movement here. And one of the speakers, Hannah Drake, who is an incredible poet and activist, responded by saying, We all have parts to play. That woman's part is being a woman of color with a goddamn PhD leading a diversity and inclusion effort for the federal government. Other people's parts are making signs and taking to the streets. But it's all those parts working together that makes the movement. And that resonated with me because, while I've been to many protests in my day, I've been struck by how, often, but not always, the idea of the protest is more powerful than the experience of the protests. I've been to protests that felt disorganized and ineffective, then seen photos later and thought, damn, that's a badass protest. So my point here isn't, don't protest, stay home, but to share how I went from feeling guilty about not attending protests or going to them and still feeling awkward and ineffective to realizing that the places where I could be most impactful weren't necessarily in the streets, that this podcast is a part of the part I play in all of this, and that trying to help organize and support local institutions creating change and disrupting patterns is another part that I want to be more active in. So to pursue that, I became an owner slash member of the Louisville Community Grocery, which is an ongoing initiative to promote food access and equity for Louisville's communities of color, which are disproportionately located in food deserts by opening a cooperative grocery store. And while I'm excited to play a more active role in that, so far I've attended two Zoom meetings and paid them $150 for membership. Because that's what these things look like at the immediate level. Telling someone about it or posting on social media can make it feel so glamorous and noble, but the lived reality is a lot more like a Zoom call and typing a credit card number into a form. So that's what my 134 days of racial justice work looks like. Baby steps, dumb excuses, and a pretty persistent pattern that doesn't seem to want to be disrupted. And yet, I'm here, recording this episode, 
And for that, I'll allow myself one single pat on the back because I think this is the key to progress. Mindfulness. In meditation, we seek to clear our mind only to have nasty little thoughts persistently wiggle their way back into our awareness. And when we find ourselves lost in thought, yet again, it's easy to fall into a secondary trap of getting lost in berating ourselves for thinking thoughts, which is just another set of thoughts. Taking a deep breath, forgiving ourselves, and returning to our breath is the only way forward. Years ago, I went to couples therapy with an ex-girlfriend who at that time was still just a soon-to-be ex-girlfriend. In one session, she had a moment of awareness and clearly saw and articulated a negative pattern that I had spent months trying to bring to her attention. The therapist and I were very relieved to see that this pattern was now out in the open and glad that my ex had come to this realization on her own. We left the session together, and by the time we reached the street, something strange was happening with her. Right before my eyes, I saw her walk back the epiphany, shut herself off from her own admission, and create a new narrative that the therapist and I were actually picking on her, that she hadn't meant what she said, and that the moment of her honestly seeing the negative pattern was suddenly gone, vanquished into the unconscious once again. It's been strange to watch the American psyche go through the same thing. There was a collective realization that racism is real, that police brutality is a problem, and the time has come to make real changes to fix a system that's not broken, but designed to be oppressive. And then America blinked, and the old pattern pushed back. In my social feed, the black squares became profile pics, and memes and self-promotion returned to the forefront. Sure, there are still posts about Black Lives Matter, but they don't seem to matter as much as the election cycle or second wave of COVID or the latest TikTok video. And in the larger social conversation, the folks who are never that into sitting with their racial discomfort or questioning the larger system in the first place suddenly found their voice again, and the conversation has returned to the predictable pattern of law and order, looters, rioters, and how dare they defund the police which gives the rest of us who are trying to hold on to the burning embers of this blazing summer's battle cries, who believe that our fiery passion for justice can't be extinguished and turned to ash so easily, a set of options and obstacles. The enemy is avoidance. Those who remove themselves from discomfort by changing the narrative. Maybe racism isn't real, or it is, but they shouldn't have broken those store windows Or wait, what about the Democrats' secret pedophile ring? If you really cared about justice, why aren't you trying to hashtag save the children? But behind avoidance is apathy. Maybe we won't fully double down on our own racist, anti-anti-racist counter-narrative, but we'll succumb to distraction. We'll settle for watching a TV show with black actors slightly more often and let the books we bought over the summer about racial justice sit on the shelf unread. And yet even more tricksy is anguish. Real emotions of grief, outrage, and despair, but directed into no viable channel of action. Self-flagellation and the endless weeping and gnashing of teeth 
as a form of performative white centering. There is plenty of cause for legitimate upsetting emotions, especially among communities of color, and the lack of progress can trigger justifiable feelings of despair. But anguish is a starting place, not the end of the line. It can only serve our goals when it accompanies action. And so the final option, the one I'm going to try and keep at and do my best for, is awareness. I can be pithy and clever and create tidy alliterative packages of concepts for my podcast. And I will continue to do that because quite frankly, it's my nature. But I don't actually have the answers. And as I learned in the last 134 days, I'll let the answer languish while I read science fiction and shop for lamps because my patterns are pernicious. But awareness is an ongoing process of returning to the moment, both in the sense of now and that brilliant moment we all lived through this summer, which is now fading into history. I haven't fully disrupted the patterns of my own racism and the racism in which I am complicit, and I likely never will. There will always be more to unpack, more to learn, and more to unlearn. But my hope is that I can come back to this awareness again and again. And the next time I sit down to record How to Disrupt a Pattern Part 3, I can report back that I haven't solved all the problems and achieved post-racial enlightenment, but that I've made progress, that I've played my part, and that I've gotten slightly better.